If you would grab a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we will start this part of our worship this morning. Exodus chapter 20. Good to see everyone this morning. I need to say, I had to say it on Mother's Day. I have to say it on Father's Day, right? Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Uh, We have some new fathers uh, this year, and that's exciting. Happy Father's Day to you for the first time, like directed at you. I guess you've experienced Father's Days before, but uh, it's it's an important and a special work uh, for men to decide that they want not only to have children, but they want to be fathers, and there is something to be said about honoring father and mother uh, that comes from Scripture. So this is a day that we've set aside to do that, so happy Father's Day to you. I want to say my appreciation to Brother Sonny uh, for last week. uh, Sarah and I and the kids, we all were able to go together uh, to Greenwood, Arkansas, near uh, Fort Smith, and uh, be with the brethren there, and I was preaching there this last uh, Sunday through Wednesday. I really had an enjoyable time. It was great to be able to have the family with me. That doesn't happen very often, at least not these days, uh, with school and everything, and so that that was exciting, and we got to uh, invade uh, Greenwood for a few days, and uh, so we had an enjoyable time, but glad to be home. And uh, this is our Q&A morning. Uh, So Typically in this time, usually it's the second Sunday in the month. Uh, this month it's the third because I was gone last week. Uh, but typically we take this time for me to answer questions that you have handed in to me uh, about different Bible topics or things that you're curious about and curious about a Bible perspective or Bible answer to those questions. So with that in mind, we're going to try to tackle three this morning depending on how quickly I go. Uh, the first is this. Uh, how do we use the Lord's name in vain, and should Christians use abbreviations like OMG? We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. Uh, so let's look in Exodus chapter 20, where this idea of using the Lord's name in vain comes from. Exodus 20 and verse 7. This is the third commandment of the Ten Commandments. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So the first two commandments dealt specifically with God. You shall have no other gods before me. There will be no carved images. And then there is this, the third commandment, which says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That word vain can mean a couple of different things. It can mean empty, or it can also mean falsehood or lying. And it's used in those different forms throughout the Old Testament. So there are two real basic interpretations of the verse. Uh, The verse can mean in one interpretation, don't use God's name for just no reason. You know, you're just talking and you start throwing out God's name, but you don't mean anything by it. So it is empty or vain. Or it can be taken as instruction about how people swear. So God expected people in the Old Testament to swear by his name. And so you see a lot of times in the Old Testament stories, someone will say, as Jehovah lives, as the Lord lives, I'll do this and that. And the idea is if you don't keep an oath that you've sworn by God, God's name, then it's a very serious thing. So if that interpretation is correct, it would mean don't take Jehovah's name and lie with it, or don't take Jehovah's name and not keep what you promised to keep. So don't use my name for lies and falsehood and emptiness. That's actually the interpretation I take. I think that what is happening here is he is saying, don't swear falsely when you use my name. Don't use my name in that false way. Uh, Here's another couple of examples of that. This is Leviticus 19 and verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
And then uh, this is Jeremiah 4.2. And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and him they shall glory. So you get the idea he's asking them to repent. If you were to actually do what you said, and you swore by my name, and then you did good things, then I would bless you. So the idea is uh, using his name falsely or using his name in a way that we're not expecting to keep uh, the promises that we're making. Uh, that's what speaking the, or using the name of the Lord in vain is describing, at least in my view. Now, the Jewish people had tremendous respect for the name of God. They refused to pronounce the name of God, lest they profane it accidentally. In fact, some of the things that I read in prep, preparing for this, only the high priest was even allowed to say the name of Jehovah, and that was only on the Day of Atonement when he went in to make atonement for the people. So they de developed a number of stand-ins for the name of God, like heaven, okay, heaven just used in place of God. So even in the New Testament, when you see Jesus describe the kingdom of heaven, what's he saying? He's saying it's God's kingdom, but he's using that, that oblique way of referring to God that's, that's indicating respect for God by not using the name directly. But it was so rarely used by the Jews that the original pronunciation of the name of God has been lost. We don't even know what it was supposed to sound like because they didn't say it that often. So the ironic thing here is that they respected the name so much that they hardly ever said it, but they seemed to miss the point of the command. The point of the command was don't use the name and be dishonest. So they said, okay, well, we just won't use the name, but we'll be okay being dishonest. So there's an irony there in how they take the respect, but they miss the other part. Let's go to Matthew 5. I think you'll see how Jesus addresses this in a couple of places in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, and kind of gets at that incongruity in their uh, theology about him. Matthew 5, I want to read in verse 33. Matthew 5, 33 says... Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, which is the verse we just quoted from Leviticus, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So, he says, and this is a major change from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you were intended to take oaths, and when you promise something, you could promise by the name of God. And they do that quite often. And it was considered an honor to God, especially when you kept it. But the idea here is Jesus says, no, don't, I don't want any more oaths, because oaths have become a pretext for lying, and they have also devolved into this kind of mess of what you're swearing by. So if you swear by this thing... You don't have to keep it. You're not really swearing by God. And Jesus' point, if you, can, you can see it right here. Everything kind of goes back to God. Look at verse 34. He says, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven. Okay, so there's that, you know, well, we're kind of using that to stand in for God. He said, no, no, heaven's the throne of God. Or verse 35, or by the earth, for it's his footstool. The passage in the Old Testament says, the earth is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Everything is God's. So when you swear by one of these things, you say, well, I don't have to keep it. Well, you're still swearing by God, and you're still taking the name of God in vain. So you're swearing, but you're not going to keep it. Turn with me over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and verse 16. 
Matthew 23, 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see what he's doing there, those last few verses? He says, you swear by this, you're really swearing by God. And it all keeps going back to God. So you swear by the altar, you swear by the stuff on the altar, and you're even swearing by the God to whom things are offered. You're swearing by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by God himself. So... Jesus says, two can play this game. You want to play the this means this means this game. I'll play it with you. Everything means you're swearing by God, so you better keep what you're saying. Don't say it is nothing about anything. So the primary application of the Bible's teaching, in my view, of taking the Lord's name in vain is that we should do what we say and keep our word. But the question, I understand that the questioner is not asking that, The question is really about how we use the name of God in our everyday speech and in our exclamations. So, you know, we say things in profanity or we say things in exclamation like, oh God, or Lordy, or Jesus Christ, or even this OMG, which is an abbreviation for oh my God, for those who may not be so tech savvy. And these are very common usages and really just exclamations that that generally are thoughtless by most in our culture. And I was just struck by this as I I was thinking through this and studying this. It is so strange to be looking in the Bible at a culture that has such reverence for God's name that they won't even say it. And then to turn to our culture where people say that name just flippantly all the time in whatever context, whatever meaning, even when they're not thinking about God at all. And that, that incongruity is startling to me. So... I think what we need to say is, it seems to me Jesus is addressing a different kind of problem when he talks about not swearing and he talks about honesty, a different kind of problem than what we have. See, in Jesus' time, what's happening is people have respect for the name of God but aren't being honest and not following through with what they're saying. In our time, it seems to me that people have no respect for the name of God whatsoever and instead we have to kind of replow that ground. So Jesus teaches his disciples to say, hallowed be your name, to reverence the name of God. Peter tells us to exalt Jesus as Lord or to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, 1 Peter 3.15. So the idea that we say the name of God or of Jesus, those are honorable names, and we wear those names proudly when we say we are a Christian or I belong to Christ's church or the church of God. Those are names that I wear with pride because I have respect for God. But I really think we need to move beyond uh, some kind of like Jacob gives all the rules of these are the words you say and can't say and when and where you can say them. Uh, That's not going to go well. I'm not a good lawmaker. Uh, This is at its heart about respect and honor for God. So let me just do it this way. Let me just ask some questions. If you say, oh my God, are you praying? Are you intending to pray? Because that's what that phrase is used for biblically. Uh, To say God or to call on the name of God, 
is to ask him for something. So if not, why are you using that name in that way if you're not addressing him or invoking him? If there is a danger that we might be disrespectful to God, can't we choose better exclamations? Here are some. I like to say snap. Aw, man, oh no. And if you're really struggling for what you're going to say when you're frustrated, think about those old Batman episodes where there would be all kinds of crazy words like fap and bam and, you know, things that are just meaningless. Sometimes we, we just want to exclaim something, okay? I'm not sure that's the best time to talk about God. We're not thinking about God. We're not trying to honor God. We're, we're just letting off steam or we're just expressing frustration or surprise or whatever. It seems to me that if there's a possibility I'm going to disrespect God, I can choose other words. And I think we need to be prepared for that if we're going to actually want to show respect for God. Have we thought about how offensive words like these can be to other people? I'm not sure we think very often about that kind of thing. You know, we just want to say what we want to say. We're not thinking about how that's going to impact others. A lot of our cuss words are cuss words, they're curses, because they misuse the name of God in a way that causes offense. And that's the reason that they're cuss words, and that's the reason they are offensive. So the question is, what would someone else conclude about my respect for God based on how I use God's name? That's the question. And I think that's also part of how we factor into answering this question. So as far as this OMG, I'm not sure many in the younger generation even think about, some of them might not even know the meaning of those words, but I think the same guidelines would follow with the use of that abbreviation. Is it respectful of God? Is it offensive? And can I find a million other ways to express myself, especially today where we have emojis, we don't even have to use words. So if that's the case, I think there might be other better explanation, exclamations for us to use. So uh, let's move on to the second question. The second question is, uh, why do we pray in Jesus' name? Is it necessary? Since we're going with names, let's talk a little bit about this. Let's go to John chapter 14. Why do we pray in Jesus' name? And do we have to use that phrase? So we're going to look at a series of passages here in John. <coughs> excuse me. John 14, 15, 16, real quick to kind of get our feet wet. John 14 and verse 13. Jesus says, John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus says, ask, but he says specifically, ask in my name. Turn the page to John 15, verse 16. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Turn the page to John 16. John 16, verse 23, it says, And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Down to verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you love me and believe that I came from God. So, in my name, in my name, in my name. So, most Christian prayer includes the phrase in Jesus' name or something about the name of Jesus in it. Uh, probably most of the prayers you've ever heard Christians utter have that phrase. Usually, our tradition is we stay right at the end, right? Okay, just slip it in at the end. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second. But um, in this context, what's happening is Jesus is emphasizing that the relationship he has with them is going to transform the way they're going to interact with God. 
So now, what you ask, you're going to ask in my name. They are going to come to God through Jesus, through the authority and intercession of Jesus. He's going to leave and go to God, and now they can ask God things in his name. So the idea here is that Jesus is the basis of our relationship with God. That's the idea that is emphasized by in my name. Jesus now is the basis on which we can approach God. So remember Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. He says, John 10, 7, I am the door of the sheep. Okay, you come in and out through me. Uh, this is Romans 5 and verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. and We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, this is Hebrews 7, 25, which is more of a priest sacrifice uh, motif. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So there is intercession where he goes before God on our behalf, cleansing us before God and takes our requests into God. All of that is uh, the idea of, of Jesus being the one who is the key to our relationship with God. But there is also the sense that when we pray to God and when we worship God, we approach him through Jesus. So in our worship, we go in before God's throne through him. This is uh, 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So him as a mediator uh, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, Ephesians 3.12. So now we're able to access the Father and we have boldness in that access because we're coming uh, through the Son. And then Ephesians 2.18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You get that. There are a number of these passages uh, that we could look at in the New Testament, but the point is made. So access and confidence don't come from ourselves. I don't go in before the throne room of God and say, well, good, I deserve to be here. We know the, the truth about that is we don't deserve to be able to approach God, and the only reason we can is because of Jesus. Here is Jesus the Son. He vouches for us. He brings us in. He seconds our requests. He explains our situation to the Father. He intercedes for us. I think that is the picture. So when we pray, we know that we, we don't deserve to be where we are. When we worship God, we don't deserve to have God's ear. But what we do is we say, this is something that God grants us because of what Jesus has done for us. So there is an acknowledgement in this idea that it's Jesus who allows us what we have. So, it would be possible to take those words in Jesus' name and make them a requirement. You know, like in John, he says, you ask in my name, in my name, in my name. And say, okay, well, what's important is, did you say in Jesus' name? But I think the evidence of the New Testament works against that because in the New Testament you have a number of prayers that don't have phraseology like that. They just pray. So I don't believe this is about just we have to say these words or else our prayer somehow is invalid and you know, the application is rejected because the paperwork wasn't in order. I don't think it's that kind of thing. Instead, it seems to me Jesus is teaching us to honor and respect his authority, just kind of like what we talked about with the idea of honoring the name of God uh, by the way we use that name. So here, honoring what Jesus has done for us by acknowledging that he's the reason we have the opportunity to approach God. So I don't think we really have a command or even an example here. I think instead what we have is just sort of a good practice to acknowledge something that's a biblical truth. Now, let me say this about this before we leave it. Um, I knew a brother uh, who really struggled with the idea that that phrase could become a vain repetition. 
And he did not like how we kind of tuck it in at the end of our prayers. And he found this for his own praying. And he would say, you know what? It's sort of like just glorified signing off, you know. All right, done with the prayer. Amen. And so what he did, and I thought this was pretty clever and might be helpful for you, is he moved it all the way to the top of the prayer. At the very beginning, he would say, Dear Father, in the name of Jesus, we approach you. And so for him, that, that switch made it where he was conscious of what he was saying and what that meant. And I thought that was helpful. If you find that helpful, use that. Uh, my caution would be, be careful about vain repetitions in your praying. I think we need to know and acknowledge that our public prayers tend to sound alike. Okay? And we kind of learn how to pray from listening to each other. And so what happens when we do that is we get a lot of borrowed phrases. We get a lot of phrases that don't mean a lot to us because we just heard that's what prayer is supposed to sound like. And anything we can do to break the spell of that, I think, will be good so that our prayers are heartfelt and they are meaningful uh, to us. So let's uh, not allow this phrase to become that while at the same time acknowledging that is a vital Bible truth for us. All right, third question. I think we're going to be able to get it. All right, the third question is totally different. How should a Christian view medical marijuana and CBD oil? All right, so uh, medical marijuana... I tell you, if somebody is looking at my Google search history this week, they're going to wonder, what's up with Jacob? So I, I had to find out a lot about medical marijuana and CBD oil. Uh, medical marijuana, I did not experiment, by the way. Medical marijuana is legal in Arkansas. Uh, in marijuana, for those who don't know, is used for pain control, especially people with chronic pain. also has some other side effects like an appetite aid. Uh, people who have trouble having an appetite uh, report better appetite when they smoke marijuana. Uh, CBD oil is marijuana without THC and without some of the psychedelic effects of marijuana. So CBD oil doesn't get you high. CBD oil is, by the way, supposed to be the greatest thing in the whole world. Uh, I found that by Googling it. Uh, and a lot of people who wanted to sell it to me told me how great it was. Uh, all kinds of medical benefits, pain relief, anxiety and depression, insomnia. Of course, none of this has been evaluated by the FDA. None of that's proven. Uh, and I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but people, you know, all kinds of products are claiming they have CBD oil in them. I saw some at the running store the other day. Uh, just, you know, hey, why not? Here's some CBD oil. Maybe it'd be good for you. But it's basically some of the, the things about the cannabis without the, uh, the high, without the psychedelic effects. So, CBD oil is legal in Arkansas, but the federal situation is kind of confusing. I don't have enough time to explain all of that. Uh, let's just say you might see it, and you might wonder, well, what's up with this? So the question is, how should a Christian view this, the idea of using marijuana to relieve pain, the idea for people who are really sick? We're not just talking about recreational drug use here. We're talking about uh, using this drug in a way that uh, would be for somebody's uh, serious condition. All right, well... The New Testament cautions us against drunkenness. I think we know that. Uh, let me show you that. Uh, 1 Peter 4 and verse 3. Uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. I, I want you to notice that this is kind of a lifestyle thing. Uh, this is about people who are kind of letting loose. And there is a sexual component. That's why sensuality is mentioned. But all of these words, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties involve alcohol, and they involve varying degrees of how intense the uh, 
alcoholic content is, but, but essentially the idea is these are things Christians stay away from. They're part of the old life, and we don't do those things anymore. We live sober now. So part of the problem with alcohol and with drunkenness is the idea of losing inhibitions and self-control. And so Christians are taught to be sober, which is more than just the idea of you know, be serious. It is also the idea of not having things influence your thinking so that you're, you lose control. Uh, this is uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5 through 8. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. I want you to notice how that sobriety is contrasted to drunkenness. The, these are things that happen with evil people. He talks about them in the night, and the idea is they're in darkness. They're in all the things that are evil, but Christians are different. So you don't live that way. You don't think that way. You have sobriety. So what I take from a passage like that and 1 Peter 4 is that anything, any substance that's going to lead me away from that sobriety, from those inhibitions, self-control, those kinds of things, that needs to be carefully monitored and honestly assessed. It's, it's a danger. So as for, uh, well, I'm not ready for that one yet. As for the CBD oil, uh, it seems to have a lot of the benefits of marijuana without the high and the effects of marijuana itself. And so that's something that needs to be considered. You know, part of the issue is, does this take me out of my right mind? And does it make me where I'm less controlled, less inhibited, where I'm going to do things I wouldn't normally do? And if we can have some of the benefits of a drug without those drawbacks of the drug, that seems to me to be a good thing. All right? Uh, now, I do believe that there is a place for drugs as helpful to kill pain, as helpful for serious illnesses, for surgeries and those kinds of things, I believe they are a gift from God for those situations. And I think for those who have gone through things like that, probably all of us at one time or another have had that problem or had something where we say, you know, we needed to take something to help us through a difficult medical situation. And I think that we need to acknowledge that that may even be the reason why God gave us those things, why God created those things. Uh, so uh, now I'm ready for this. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So he's not saying, hey, Timothy, it's cool. Go get drunk, get wasted. It'll be great. He's saying, no, you're sick. Take some wine. It'll help you feel better. And that may even be the reason why uh, God created the wine so that in situations like this, it would be good for you. Uh, this is Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. He says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. All right, so the idea of this text is that there are things like wine and strong drink that are not intended for recreation. This is not, you know, go have fun, but for serious situations where people are in dire need. And I think that's the idea of why drugs or things like that would be a part of our lives is because there are situations we get into where we would say, wow, um, I'm in bitter distress or in some way I'm dying and there's some way that this could benefit me by relieving pain or changing the, the mental state in some way. But we have problems even with prescription drugs, even with opioids and painkillers. We have problems because those things as good as they are in certain situations, become remarkably addictive because of the way they impact our bodies. 
And I think we have to say that the Bible speaks pretty clearly about things that are going to addict us and bring our bodies under the control of some other thing. Uh, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now that all things are lawful for me, he's not being literal and saying, you know, everything is okay. What he is talking about is a way that some of the people in Corinth were approaching Christian freedom and saying, you know, everything's lawful, so don't tell me what to do. He says, well, there are other things to consider besides just whether something is lawful, like whether it's helpful and whether it dominates me or masters me. So, there is a thin line between something that benefits the body and something that addicts me. And that goes for alcohol or for marijuana or for opioids or for caffeine or for any other thing we're putting into our bodies that can affect the way our bodies function, where we very easily become mastered by things. So even if we have dealt with all the other considerations like the legal problem or the effect of the drug, we still have to deal with the possibility that we could become addicted to it and that we have to be in control of ourselves. So uh, I put the question at the top because i got some things to say underneath it here. But let, let's just answer the question, how should a Christian view medical marijuana and CBD oil? I think the first thing I have to say is observe the legalities. Christians are law-abiding. Uh, even if we think a drug should be legal, we don't get to like, use it and say, well, we'll move the process along. That, that's a totally different discussion about whether things should be legal or whether we think you know, that certain freedoms are being restricted or something like that. I'm not here to talk about that today. Let's just say the law is the law and Christians obey the law uh, unless there's some reason why we, in order to serve God, have to disobey the law. In fact, I would say that if we are willing to do underhanded things or break the law to get a drug, it says some serious things about our motives. Okay, that we are motivated not by a desire to you know, have something that we think will be beneficial, but we might be motivated by something more sinister. And that leads me to this. Uh, observe the legalities. Check your motives. Is this about me? You know, if we're thinking about medical marijuana, okay, if we're talking about a serious ailment, but if we're talking about having a good time and being excited that something like that might be available, that's a different deal, and that's a different issue. Even things that have secondary effects can have powerful addictive properties. And here's the danger. Those often result in a lot of after-the-fact justifications where we look back and say, oh, well, this is okay because, I mean, after all, I did this and this and this. So I don't think we can address anything like this without being really honest about what we think and how that affects our reasoning about it. And finally, uh, be careful about addiction. I'm not sure that we take this that seriously, but we need to be guarding our bodies so that we're not going to be dominated by anything. So you got all of that. I'm not sure that uh, Christians are going to that often run into the issue of medical marijuana, but these are the things that I think biblically would govern the way we think about that. So I think there are probably some principles here that you can see. Marijuana itself is not addressed in Scripture, but you can see how those things would apply to other classes of things that would affect our behavior and our thinking and that, that kind of thing. So I would just say these are the general principles on which I would address most of those questions. All right. Thank you so much for your attention. We're going to be dismissed for our classes.